Hi there, I'm Caroline Casper and on behalf of the Equity Foundation and the Actors Benevolent Fund of New South Wales, I would love to welcome you to our third session in the Resilience session, um, sessions that we have with Dr. Julie Crabtree. This is the Health and Wellness series presented by the Actors Benevolent Fund of New South Wales and the Equity Foundation. First of all, though, I would love to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nations and pay my respect to the traditional owners of country throughout all our country and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land and we pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging. A huge kia ora to our New Zealand neighbours. Thank you so much for joining us today. As we know, our entertainment industry has been under many stresses and indications are that there's a lot of mental health stresses out there in the creative industries. Um, we hope that this health and wellness series will go some way to alleviating that, to unlocking and discovering methods to keep ourselves mindful, present, and to give us the tools that we need to deal with the challenges that we face. Uh, today's session will run approximately 45 minutes to an hour. If you have any questions, uh, as you know, Dr. Julie Crabtree is extremely schedule tight at the moment. So we are pre-recording some of these sessions. However, if you have any questions that you'd like us to follow up for you, uh, please email us at info at equityfoundation.org.au and we will endeavour to get those answers out to you. Before I go any further, I think we need to chat a little bit about the wonderful Dr. Julie Crabtree. For those of you who have um, been to the other sessions on resilience, you'll know just how much she is a, a minefield of, of information with regard to the creative mind and some of the particular stresses that we've that in the entertainment industry feel. Uh, she's worked with um, in the creative industries and with creative people for over 27 years and has experience as a psychologist in both private practice and also with other organizations. She holds a doctorate in clinical psychology and her doctoral research into creativity and mental health means that she's, the she's at the forefront of our understanding of how to be healthy and creative and by creative, we mean all of those who work in the creative industries, helping to tell their stories that are essential to our way of being in this world, be it cast, crew, or production. So on that note, on that creative note, Julie, do you wanna take it away? Yeah, thank you so much, Carolyn, and welcome back. It's wonderful to be here again with you. We're just gonna do a little bit of a recap. We talked over the last two sessions about what resilience is, to tolerate disturbances without collapsing, to withstand shocks, to rebuild when necessary, and to improve. And I ask the same thing at the beginning of the last session, I'll, and I'll do the same today. Just take a moment to reflect on how resilient you feel you've been over the last week or so. Notice when you feel that you've been responding in a more resilient way. We particularly were asking you to do um, some work around the daily mood chart. The first week we asked you to notice your moods, your sleep patterns and other things. After the second session, we uh, asked you to particularly notice your skinlessness and to kind of take note of those things. If you've just kind of joined us for this session, we just do a very brief recap of where some of the research evidence is and you know, to give you a little bit of background about why I'm up using this bizarre word called skinlessness. So this is a brief summary of what 
researchers have found out over the last 20 years or so to do with the unique cognitive and temperament or personality wiring of the creative person. These things are necessary to be creative. In fact, some research was done on looking at kind of brain activity and looking at creative thought. And they found that in particular, this idea of being great, of greater openness to, to experience, which is the exploratory risk-taking aspect of creativity was absolutely essential to be creative. The other thing that was found to be absolutely essential is this idea of divergent thinking, which is rapid fluid thinking able to make unique associations. So we use language rather than using the very kind of clunky psychological language or research language, we're using language like fluid thought for divergent thinking. We're using language like risk for this exploratory open aspect. We're using language like skinlessness, which is doing life with one layer of skin missing, or the reduced ability to filter out irrelevant information that I talked in a little bit more detail in the last session. The idea of high neuroses, which means that you feel your pain and you feel other people's pain deeply. We talked about that from an emotional point of view. We're gonna talk about that from an empathic point of view today. The other aspect is this idea of impulsive nonconformity. In order to be creative, you have to see things differently. And that means that you need to be a little nonconformist. So researchers define creativity is the process of having original ideas that have value and worth in society. You may disagree with that definition, but it's the research definition. So it implies the idea of new and original ideas. And in order to have new and original ideas, you need to be to see the world differently. And that's the non-conformity. We talk about that in terms of attitude. And then the resistance to premature closure is an idea that was coined by one of the well-known researchers and is this idea of creative people embracing complexity. So that's a kind of a recap on what we covered last time. We've got, if you like, a framework for thinking about resilience. And our framework in our first session covered values and growth and mastery. And we had some things that we were encouraging to do in terms of identifying values, in terms of developing skills. Last session, we talked a, a little bit about this idea of flexibility, which is stretching out your ability to tolerate intense emotion. And we had some techniques and tools around that. Today, we're gonna to talk about relationships. Um, in terms of um, how to build resilience. You'll notice that I haven't talked about identity. That's because we're going to have a whole section on identity. So this is our resilience modules. We've had module one and module two. And this is the third section, which is being resilient in relationships. And we're going to be looking at mastering some new skills, I guess, particularly around some some skills, particularly around boundaries and managing your empathy. But we're first going to talk about the idea of mentors and social supports, because um, we know from research that resilient people have got good, strong social supports. Resilient people have mentors. And I'll talk a little bit about what that's like. Resilient people reach out quickly. Resilient people have got great networks. Resilient people 
understand relationship boundaries and learn how to put in place boundaries and resilient people learn how to manage their empathy. So we'll be talking about some of those aspects over the session. I talked about this last session, I won't go into it in too much detail, but we talked about the idea that creative people need to learn how to operate what we call tidally. And that's having different opposing points that they either move between or keep in tension. And I gave the example of the first one, the ego, where to get up on stage, you've got to believe that you're great. You've got to believe that you can perform really well, that you've got something to give that people want to look or listen to or respond to. But it's easy when you come off stage that you immediately go, that was terrible, that was the worst thing that happened. And really feel that sense of, I guess, deflated ego. And to tell creative people to be balanced, to be normal, is not something that I think helps understand the creative process and the creative person, because it is a little bit of living in the extremes. So what we talk about is learning how to manage these extremes by understanding the tides and learning to understand when you're at a high tide moment, that we're talking about the inflated, the non-conforming, the fluid. And when you're at a low tide moment, which is deflated or conforming, more structured, insulated, Zoom focused. Today, we're going to be touching on particularly one section, but we're going to be looking at the area of action. We're going to be looking at risk and safety. And this is in particular around relationships. What sort of relationships do you take risk in? What type of relationships do you need for your safety? And also, I guess implied in that is the understanding how you manage the nonconformity. If you are constantly on nonconformity, it's very hard to manage and maintain social supports. So we have to find some way of, of learning to live with those different drivers. The first thing that I want to talk about is that's very consistent in the research is that resilient people have mentors. Now, I don't want you to kind of come up to um, all the people in the industry and go, I want you to be my mentor. That's, I guess, not what we're talking about because it, mentors can relate to different things. But mentors are people that are just ahead of you. So it comes from Homer's Odyssey. So Athena, the goddess of wisdom, assumed the form of mentor to give Telemachus some useful advice to help him overcome ob obstacles. So the idea of a mentor is someone that is ahead of you in some ways, that you can look to for counsel, insight, guidance, direction, validation, motivation, encouragement. A mentor is not a friend. A mentor is definitely not a counselor. A mentor is not a coach. A mentor is not a supplier of finance and a mentor is not a surrogate parent. So this is somebody who we identify is, is ahead of us and we recognise has some insight and guidance and direction. And I think within the, the performing arts industry, I would be looking around for those people who you admire, particularly from a resilient and well-being point of view. And look to, there might be, um, people in your world 
that you want to establish either a formal or informal relationship as, as a mentor. I'm going to show you a clip, and this is from a series that you're probably familiar um, about. It's Inside the Actor Studio with James Lipton. And this was an interview with Dustin Hoffman. And he talks about, I guess, this moment where he received mentoring from Olivier. And I, I thought it might be a helpful way for you to orientate your head in terms of mentorship. Sometimes because of the painkillers. I mean, it was that sad. He wanted to be a part and took it because he knew he was dying. He learned later he wanted to have money to leave his kids. We were tight, 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 tight. And when that movie was over, we went out to dinner. I'll never forget it. Never, ever, ever, ever forget it. I'm sitting there with Olivier. I don't know if I'm ever going to see him again because, you know, he's, he's sick. His wife is there, this wonderful woman, Joan Plowright. And, uh, and we're sitting, and then his kids, a couple of his kids are there, and then we're waiting, and this other kid comes, who's going to UCLA. I remember he had red hair, and I remember he went up in back of Olivier, and he patted his head and kissed him on the head. And he just knew, you know, this, this, this thing, you know. Oh, God. And he sits down, and we're talking, whatever. I'm just so curious. I just, you know, we all wonder what makes us do what we do. Give an answer. <laughs> I said, tell me, what is it? What's the reason we do what we do? And he, can I get up? Yeah. He goes right up and he gets, he leans over to me and he, I swear to God. And he leans over and says, you want to know why I do what I swear? Look at me, 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 look at me. I think that's a, an amazing example of a moment of mentoring. You know, you can see it's not necessarily a huge long-term formal relationship, but it's a moment where uh, Dustin Hoffman, and you can see the depth of emotion. You can see how important and powerful this moment was to him. You can see the empathy and the regard that he gave to Olivier at this point in his career and time. You can see he was looking for this word and this understanding that would help him make sense of himself and career. And you can see that this was a moment that taught him something about how he would understand himself. And again, it's very insightful and true that, that for the performer, often there is a drive to be seen. There is a, a, a drive to be affirmed. And if you understand that driver, it helps you make sense of yourself and make sense of some choices that you make. So that's, I guess, an example of a mentor and a mentoring moment that is not necessarily formal, not necessarily uh, over time, but is a way of you learning from somebody else. So I've got there the different types of mentors, formal, informal, historical, distant, cross-industry, or even negative and destructive mentors. So for me, one of the people that mentors me is Brené Brown. Now, I have never met her. I am very unlikely to meet her. 
And some of you may or may not know about her. She's an incredible um, social researcher and she's written some extraordinary books that I think help us all make sense of who we are and how we relate. And she's an incredible communicator her insight and her language and understanding and how she, I guess how she lives her life, mentors me. I learn from her. She's on Instagram. I follow her on Instagram. And I learn something of how she manages her personal and her public life. I learn something about the priorities she makes. And there was a period of time where clearly she, stuff was going on for her and she needed to withdraw and needed some privacy for her. I, I, I learned how she navigates the different tensions and stresses of living in the US. And I learn from her. As I said, it's a, it's a very kind of distant, informal mentorship, but it's a very profound and powerful mentorship as well that helps me understand how I can be the best me. <clears throat> and for you, you know, if one of your values is health, health and well-being, if one of your values is learning how to be the best you in, for your family and friends. So think right now of some mentors. They may be people that you admire from a distance, as I do. I don't fangirl too much, you know. I've never actually approached her, but I learn from her. Think of the people from your point of view that you can learn from, that you can draw from that are going to help you make sense of how you are who are the people right now that you think are doing this particular time well from a mental health and well-being perspective think of the people that you know that you feel that have good values around themselves their personal world their family their friendships there may be more formal mentorships and there may be teachers and things like that that you go to for classes or sessions that are also your mentors. That's a very formal, clearly understood and boundaried mentorship. But understanding that you have got extraordinary number of people that you can learn from, that you can draw from, and that you can help develop into being the type of person that you want to be. So we're looking at the super mentor cheat sheet. What would a super mentor be like for you? Break it down. Make a list of the qualities you're looking for. Now, you're not going to have materialized in front of you coming up to you and say, I'd like to be your mentor, this person. But if you think of the qualities of people that you, you would like in a mentor, it helps you identify the type of person you want to learn from. And again, that learning is often a very informal, it can often be a non-verbal learning that you develop. So I would encourage you to do this. And this is because we understand that learning from a mentor helps us to be the better us and helps us develop resilience. Alongside that idea of a mentor is our, our friendship and our social support. I, um, a long, long time ago, last century, I did a lot of work around hold-ups and we would go into these kind of trauma situations and we would help people that have gone through this incredible experience. And one of the things I found and research supported was that those that did well 
had really good social supports. And what we also found is that often the traumas happened in, in this situation in a, in a bank or a, an organization where people supported each other afterwards, they found that they, they resolved the stress of the trauma more easily and more readily. We also know that even from understanding the soldiers from wars, there was a difference between how those in World War II and those from the Vietnam War managed the traumas they'd experienced. In World War II, they went over in their units, they fought together and they went home on the slow boat home from often Europe to, um, to Australia. In the Vietnam War, you had the soldier that would leave on a plane individually after eight hours join a unit. And then after his tour of service, he would individually get on a plane and go home in eight hours. And what some of the differences were is that one had this supportive group to process it. And one really went, went back home without the support of their group. That made a huge difference in terms of how they responded to the traumas that they'd experienced. So we know being part of a, of a supportive group is incredibly important for, for you. And we are going through difficulties now. Uh, and I think we touched on some of those in our last session in terms of how, how our governments, and I'm talking particularly for Australia, not necessarily New Zealand here, have devalued the arts industry and what that has been like. So to get through the difficulty of that is your, is your supports, your social supports. And we know from research, reaching out quickly with your social supports is an indicator of resilience. And I would encourage you to, in the same way we've mapped out what a super mentor would look like, just go, who, who's the you know, two or th three people that are in my close support group? In fact, there's a scale called the Homes and Race Stress Scale, which measures the stress that you've been under. And one of the, th the questions it asks, do you have somebody that you can rely on within 50 kilometers? And it reflects the fact that having people that we can talk to, get support from, ring up when we're not doing so well is so, so critical for our resilience. And if you feel like you don't have that, then I would encourage you to, to reach out to those people that you can establish those relationships with. I want to also talk about this idea of boundaries, because as we're reaching out to our social supports, one of the things that helps us stay healthy and well is having good boundaries. Now, boundaries are things like Boundaries in a relationship are kind of like this. They help each person figure out where one person ends and the other begins. In short, boundaries help you define what you're comfortable with and how you would like to be treated by others. I often picture boundaries like I would a house. A house used to, it may not now, often has a, a gate and a fence. And somebody coming into the house is to get through the gate and fence. And you've got to decide where well, you're happy for the gate to be open. And they don't jump over the fence. They've got to actually go through the gate. So that's one aspect of 
a, an example of a boundary. The next, using that analogy, the next boundary is a door. And people just don't walk through the door. They knock at the door and you open it. That's an, another, and, you're in, and they're invited in. So there are kind of two mechanisms where you get to choose in a house where people can come in. If we think about that for our person as well, where we understand that we can choose how much people access us, how much we're comfortable with people access, accessing us and how we would like to be treated by others. And I think this is an important question because um, what I find is issues around boundaries can come up again and again and again. And there's often a reason for that. And that is because the, the creative person is highly empathic. They feel things deeply. Um, they feel somebody else's pain deeply. It's very common in my view for there to be an enmeshing or blurring of boundaries um, that you can, it's easy for you to feel what other people are feeling and you almost take it on as your own feeling and you carry it and wear it. One of the things that's helpful is learning how to establish a line between what's somebody else's issue and what's your issue. Feeling for others is not taking their emotion and letting it, letting it push you down. Feeling for others is not necessarily being mistreated and having your boundaries not respected. So what can be helpful is some ways of understanding emotional boundaries. So emotional boundaries involve separating your feelings from an, another's feelings. Violations include taking responsibility for other people's feelings. Like if somebody's sad or hurt or down, you feel responsible. Now, you might have done something that may contribute to that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about somebody feeling sad or down or hurt for a whole lot of other reasons. And you feel responsible for their pain or sadness when you haven't done anything. And you feel like you're, you spend time with them and then suddenly you walk away feeling the weight of their pain. That's not helpful for you. Letting another's feelings dictate your own. So it's feeling like you should feel for me. You should feel this. Um, sacrificing your own needs to please others. And again, it's common when you are somebody that feels deeply that you push down your own needs because of other people's needs. So somebody else is feeling rejected or sad or alone and you need time by yourself, but you push down your own needs because they need to spend time with you. Now, there can be a give and take in relationships, but I think when you're always pushing down your needs to please another, that's when you need to establish a boundary. And that is, it's okay for me to acknowledge and, and meet my needs. I don't have to suppress my needs for somebody else. Blaming others for your problems and expecting responsibility for, the, for theirs. That means that there is a clear separation between what another person's issues are and what your issues are, that you don't take responsibility for, for their stuff. And again, it's very easy when you feel deeply for people 
um, when you are a compassionate person to blur those things. Now, I want you to think right now about maybe some of the relationships that are around you and think about if there are any relationships where you feel there may be that blurring, where they may be going through difficulties and you feel that you're carrying their sadness, their distress, their anger or their pain. I'm going, you can, you can feel for somebody, you can support somebody without taking your feelings. And I'm, I'm saying this as, you know, as somebody who's been in practice for 20, 30 years, we have to learn to feel and be empathic towards somebody, but to not take their stuff on. If we didn't, then we wouldn't be able to keep doing what we're doing. So what we, we have to learn is a boundary between their feelings and our feelings and a boundary between empathizing when you're there and understanding and supporting, but not carrying it for yourself. Strong boundaries protects your self-esteem and your identity as an individual with the right to make your own choices. And so I think this is an, an opportunity for you to think about some of your relationships, perhaps some of your relationships where you feel like uh, an underlying resentment or an underlying guilt. And it may be because you've got these blurring of empathy and feelings where you're carrying somebody else's stuff, where you're suppressing your needs because of somebody else. And there are simple ways of establishing boundaries and reinforcing boundaries. And that is, you know, you can say, look, I know you'd like me to come over now, but I, I really can't at the moment. But how about we catch up on this time? And I thought, oh, no, no, please, please, can we? And you go, no, no, I, I really can't, but I can then. So that's just reinforcing boundaries. You don't feel out of guilt that you've got to stop what you're doing and, and respond to their needs. And I had a situation where, where somebody was being dis quite disrespectful toward me. And I had no qualms about going, look, let's stop it here. You know, I had enough self-respect for myself that I didn't feel it was comfortable being treated like that. So that's a boundary as well, where I don't feel like I've got to take responsibility for somebody else's distress or anger or whatever, that I can put in place a boundary. And I can respect my own needs and my own issues enough to say, no, this is not okay. I, I think too, visually seeing a separation between you and your own pain and distress and emotions and their issues. There's a word that we use in psychology called enmeshment, and it's a really, I think, quite visual word, which means an inappropriate entwining around. And I, as I said, I think we can become easily enmeshed and entwined with, with people because we are deep feelers. So learning how to unenmesh, and I don't think that's a word, but I've just made it up, our own feelings from other people's feelings is I think a really helpful way of establishing our own sense of resilience. And I think what we've talked about, um, going back to our, our original slide between risk and safety, 
risk can, can mean that we are often somebody that, that is, as we say, exploratory, pushes boundaries, kind of wants nobody seeking all the time. That can translate into wanting to have new and different relationships all the time. And it can translate into a feeling like our current relationships can get boring and very samey. And I think, you know, there's, there's, a, there's some restlessness there that can be in relationships. When we think about that kind of childhood chart between risk and safety, and we think about the question of relationships, it's worthwhile asking ourselves the question, do I want to take a risk with my relationships? Or are my relationships part of my mental health ment um, anchoring? And therefore, should I learn to keep safety in my relationships? And in order to keep safety in my relationships, do I value the social supports? Do I put in place good, healthy boundaries that keep me in great, safe relationships? And do I learn to take risk in other ways? It's a way of thinking about how to bring resilience to our relationships. So in closing, I'm gonna come back to what I suggested, which is reach out quickly. If you're there and you're not in a good place, if you know you're flat and low, reach out. If you feel like you don't wanna reach out, then reach out to places like Lifeline and I'm sure New Zealand has got a similar kind of on-core process where you can reach out if you're not in a great place. Use those supports for you if you need to. to. In, a, in another, is it okay to go? Look, I'm not doing okay. Can I come over? Now, the person on the other end might say, look, now's not a good time. Let's go next week, putting in place good boundaries. But... Um, but learning, learning to people to be people that connect, not isolate in relationships. So to bring that all together, what we've talked about is resilience in relationships is having mentors. They're people either in our direct world or even remotely that we look up to and we are wanting to learn from. We have great social supports and we develop and invest in our constant, social supports. Part of the skills of that is learning boundaries, which is learning how to separate our empathic and feeling world from somebody else's so that we can learn to keep safe, stable relationships in our, our world and, and take our risk in other ways. So that finishes our section on um, resilience. We've talked about things like values, awareness, perspective. We've looked at skinlessness and managing emotions, developing kind of that flexibility, learning that ability to manage that. We're also talking about in relationships, learning to look to other people to teach us, having social supports, reaching out quickly, and also having good, safe, stable, strong boundaries in relationships. So that finishes that. Our next um, session we'll be um, talking about anxiety. So I uh, look forward to see you then. Back to you, Carolyn. 
Thank you so much, Julie. Thank you, thank you. Um, I actually have a, a just had a thought. We were talking about relationships and establishing boundaries. I was just look, thinking about ways of doing that, and you talked about you know feeling secure enough in yourself to go, okay, that's not going to suit me right now. Are there other methods that you could, I mean, that might help you get into that state where you can not delve into that drama or delve into those feelings? One of the things that I found helpful with people is firstly to imagine that you have got a gate, fence and a door. Mm -hmm. And so Again, it's the awareness. Notice the feeling. So if you're feeling guilty, why are you feeling guilty? Yeah. What's going on for you? If you are feeling a sense of violated, notice that, name it, process it. So that's why, you know, I talked about this idea of awareness. When we're aware, then we can do something about it. If we're feeling guilty because a friend has said, I, I need you now, and you've said no, that, that means, um, and they keep on pushing and you feel like you're going over there and you're feeling, you know, uh, violated and resentful and guilty. Notice it, name it, and then go, okay, I need to put in place boundaries here. That's a really helpful way for you to build up your, your capacity and your skill in putting in place boundaries. Uh, if you know that you're not very good at putting in place boundaries, I would also write out some statements <laughs> you know yeah. and and that is look it's it's not it's not great for me now look I'm 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 sorry I really can't do that you actually practice and rehearse some of those things that help you put in place boundaries yeah that's yeah wonderful I'm I'm also wondering whether when we were talking about naming the emotions and rec or recognizing what the emotions are too yeah. getting to, getting to the bottom of why you're feeling Yes. the way you might be in some of those relationships. Would the mindfulness exercises that you, you've spoken about previously, the, the five, four, three mm. mindfulness exercise, would that, would that assist in that process, do you think? Mm. I mean, I think any time you're pausing, mm -hmm. any time you're being present, any time you're giving yourself space and awareness to explore is always going to help. And that's why, it, you know, I started with this idea of awareness. Mm. we've kind of come to the the kind of the phase of that and I would encourage you looking at your daily mood chart to notice emotions like guilt like that feeling of discomfort or violation or being used because maybe your boundaries are being are being pushed here just notice some of those things notice how you feel after you've been with people because part of that too is knowing who are your these great energy giving relationships and relationships that kind of tend to drain you now we don't kind of cut off people but maybe maybe it's it's about spending more time with friendships that are life-giving than friendships that are really draining i find with some people they they go, oh, I don't feel great this week. And I'm going, well, what's gone on? And they spend a lot of time with people that are very, very draining and they feel incredibly depleted. Mm. And I kind of say, well, well, have you thought of saying no? And they go, oh, no, I don't think I can. You know, so that's a kind of a simple way of, of going, well, you're going to feel better if you start to say no 
And if you spend time either by yourself or with people that that give life to you. Um, I, yeah, I'm, and I imagine too in the, the environment that we're in at the moment, mm. uh, there have been lots of situations where people people's mm. boundaries have, haven't been helpful. And as you said, conversely, looking for those relationships that bore you up, that are that mm. help reflect the magnificence of you, yes. if you like, and and looking for that joy and that mm. life of, as you said, life affirming. Yes. Yay. Yes. Thank you so much. Can I well, just kind of finish mm. with what I flagged mm. before? And that is that if you're not in a good place, then you are better off ringing somewhere like Lifeline rather than keeping on demand, in some ways using your, your friends as your surrogate counsellors. Because, you know, in, in some ways it's, it's not helpful to the friendship. Mm. And you have a resource, a wonderful resource, like Lifeline, and I will find out the New Zealand equivalent. Um, they might have their own Lifeline. That is available for you. Use them. Talk to them. Get help and support from them. Go and see somebody rather than keeping on using friendships as your surrogate counsellor. As I said, friendships are far more important for you and you want to have those friendships in a year's time. So that's, that's I guess, a way of acknowledging the distress that people can be in, but also going, here's where you go for help. Mm. I've just found it. It is Lifeline in New Zealand. Thank so you. So yeah. there we go. And also, and also balancing your support system, because mm. we, we all need that social yes. support with that healthy support system and, and yes. having those boundaries. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. As we said, balancing all things, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to bring it. Thank you, um, Julie Crabtree. Thank you so much for another enlightening session. We hope you all found it very useful. A huge thank you to the Actors Benevolent Fund of New South Wales, without whom this series would not be possible. Um, again, if you have any follow-up questions that you would like answered, please welcome through to info at equityfoundation.org.au and we will endeavour to get them answered for you. We have, well, as you can see, our next module is happening based on anxiety. There'll be three sessions, part three parts to that one. So keep your eyes peeled for when that one happens. You can find out all of our events on our, via our Facebook page, the Equity Foundation website, or the e-bulletins that you will receive. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Julie Crabtree. Um, I can't wait for the next session. Thank you. <laughs> See you later. Bye. Bye.